Please turn in your Bibles again to Romans chapter 6. And our focus once again will be Romans 6 verse 14. So I'll simply read that verse this evening as we begin. Romans 6, 14, we have the words of the Apostle Paul. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's once again look to God and ask for his help as we come to his word this evening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would once again instruct us from it tonight. And especially as we focus on this subject of the law of God, help us as we have just prayed, as Pastor Khan led us, that we would bow our necks to your yoke and we would gladly receive this yoke of your law because it's not a burdensome thing, but it should be our delight. Make it our delight. And even if you help us to better understand the role of your law in the life of the Christian, even if you help us to embrace it, even if you help us by the work of your Spirit to bring forth fruit in our lives by following your good and holy law, deliver us from the temptation of our carnal hearts to take any credit to ourselves. Help us to respond as we heard this morning. Even if we do all that your word says, we are only unworthy servants. We have only done what was commanded us to do. Help us to thus say, not unto us, not unto us be glory, but to your name in your name alone, through Jesus Christ, your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. One of the things I said last week in the evening when I was preaching on Romans 6.14 is that when it states there that you are not under law, one of the things it does not mean is that you are masterless or rudderless as you live the Christian life, that you're just turned over to yourself as your master to do what you want to do. That is not one of the things that this verse teaches when it says you are not under law, but under grace. It's not saying, as a Christian, you don't receive orders from anyone. It's not saying that as a Christian, you don't get told what to do. That is how many professing Christians understand this passage. They think, they say it many times, the law has nothing to do with me now that I'm saved. I'm a Christian. Don't talk about the Ten Commandments. That's legalism. And that is why I grouped this passage along with Matthew 7.1, Judge not lest you be judged. I said that both of those passages are used to a similar end. They're used by people who don't want to be told what to do. They don't want you to tell them ever that they're sinning. They say that's judging, and they say that's being legalistic. I'm not under law. Both those passages are used to a similar end. Both of those passages are misunderstood, and they are twisted in a similar way. Tonight, 
we're going to face this question, or I'm going to raise this question and try to answer it. Does the Bible teach that the law of God has a place in the Christian life? Now, that subject is not really addressed by Romans 6.14, but it is suggested by the way that this passage is misused, and because you are subject in this world to hearing people who like to misuse this text, I want to help you to understand it better, and I want to un help you understand what the Bible teaches about the law of God and the life of Christians. So let's start out with the clear teaching of the New Testament about the role of the law. And I'm going to be simple and brief generally. I probably still have two messages in my notes that are in front of me, but I'm not going to say a lot. I've taught over the years, and when I come to the end of what I have to say in these messages, I'll point you to some sermons I've preached and Sunday school lessons I've taught and other resources for your study as well. I think to the degree that you don't clearly understand what the Bible teaches about the law, you will do well to do further study. It will uh, help you immensely, I believe, in your Christian life and walk. But the clear teaching, first of all, of the New Testament about the role of the law. I mentioned last week that no one can earn salvation through law-keeping. So let's just start with that one negative point, since it's right back a few chapters earlier in Romans. Romans 3, verse 20. If you start at this point and understand it and believe it and never forget it, you will be saved to a great degree from legalism. But you need to believe everything else the Bible says about God's law as well. But we start out with this negative point. Therefore, Paul says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law does help you to see your sin. It gives you knowledge of it. Whether you're an unbeliever, it can show you your sin, or a believer, we still have sin. But the most important point is right there in the middle, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. So whether you're an unbeliever and you want to become right before God, you cannot do it by the works of the law. And if you're a believer and you want to be justified in God's sight, or you want to get... Um, have, have a, a greater experience of glory, you cannot do that by the works of the law. You can't earn anything by keeping God's law, period. If you believe that and hold on to it forever, you will do well. But that does not mean there is no use of the law of God in the Christian life. So let's notice just a couple of points, very simple, relatively brief, First of all, some positive statements about the law right here in Romans. This normal way or common way that many people understand Romans 6.14, you are not under the law, that is, it has nothing to do with you, that is a wrong understanding of the law. But that's taken to, be, to mean that the law has no good purpose, it's not good, it has nothing to do with you as a Christian, but that's not what it teaches but that's taken as a negative statement about the law in a way that it's not intended. Let's just look at a couple of clear statements in the book of Romans that tell us that the law is good 
for its proper purposes. First of all, Romans 3.31. I pointed this out back in the end of chapter 3 when I was preaching there. I said I would have a lot more to say on this point. Here's something I'm going to say about it tonight. Paul says, Do we then make void the law through faith? In the previous verses, he's been explaining the gospel very simply and very directly. It's perhaps this passage, uh, especially verses 21 through 26, is the most concentrated and clear statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have in the whole Bible. And so after Paul makes that point, and he started out in verse 21 by saying, the righteousness of God comes apart from the law. It's not by keeping the law that you become righteous before God. He kind of comes back to that thought, and he says in verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? In other words, can we just say then, let's throw out the law? Why bother with it if we can't be saved through it, through keeping it? He says, certainly not. In other words, he's saying, it's not that the law has no purpose, it's just that it doesn't have that purpose. You can't save yourself by keeping it. And then he says, on the contrary, we establish the law. Now, he doesn't say what we establish the law for, but we should take note, well, there must be some good use of the law. Because he says we establish it. It's not all bad. So there's a very positive statement about the law. It's good, we could say, for its proper purpose or purposes. And then turn over to Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul makes another very positive statement about the law. We'll look at this statement and its context in the weeks to come. Maybe I should say months to come. But we will look at it. It's a whole chapter away yet. But he says, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Now, if that's not a positive statement about the law of God, I don't know what is, and I don't know how a stronger positive statement could be made. So just don't take Romans 6.14, you are not under law but under grace, and say the law is bad, it's all bad. There's no good use of it. Get it away from me. That's how many people look at it. Don't you do that. Believe what Paul says here, that there are positive statements about the law right here in Romans 14. Based on these first two texts, brethren, we can definitely say that the law of God is not just a negative or bad thing. So right there, that should tell us we should never think the law, ah, uh, bad. I'm so glad we have nothing to do with that anymore. That's not true. Don't think of it that way. There are positive statements about the law right here in the book of Romans. We could say as bookends for this statement in Romans 6.14. But then the second thing is, following from that, there is a proper purpose for the law in the Christian life. Let's just notice that fact, and that's in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8. 1 Timothy 1, verse 8. Paul says, mentioning in verse 7, 
that there are false teachers around, false teachers that the people in the church in Ephesus were um, subject to. They would hear their teaching. And he says, those are people who desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. In other words, don't listen to them. Whatever they say about the law, he says, they're not helping you. So don't listen to them. But then he says in verse 8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So there's a lawful use of the law, Paul says. There's a good use of the law for Christians. He's talking here especially about Christian teachers. But then that means if a Christian teacher teaches about the biblical use of the law, you can learn from it and you can benefit from it. So believe that. There's a proper purpose of the law in the Christian life. Here's the fact stated right here in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8. A very important text for understanding what the Bible and the New Testament in particular says about the use of the law for Christians. Then secondly, under this heading, there's a proper purpose for the law in the Christian life. Let's notice the basic purpose for the law in the Christian life, and that is that it's a rule for our life. The law is a rule for our life. Theologians refer to this as the third use of the law. You don't need to remember that to benefit from what I'm going to say here. If you do want to do further study, you'll find out that theologians have said there are three uses of the law, three basic uses. One is to help people in the world in general not sin way more than they do. And that's the first use of the law. And so think of this, thou shalt not kill. Why is that almost a universal rule in this world? Well, because God, who made the universe, gave that law. And so many people have enshrined it in the laws of their states and countries. You shall not kill, you'll be put in jail, or maybe you'll be killed if you kill other people unlawfully. You know what that helps to do? Restrain people's sins. That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is that it helps to convict sinners of their sins. The law of God does. And it helps to bring them to conviction and humility and repentance and is useful to bring them to salvation in Christ. The law doesn't bring them to salvation in Christ, but God uses it to that end. Paul will talk about that in Romans 7 when he says, I didn't know that I was a sinner, I'm paraphrasing him, till the law said to me, you shall not covet. And one day God brought that home to his heart and it humbled him and it led to his conversion. The third use of the law is what we're looking at here tonight. It's a rule of life for the Christian. That's the basic purpose of the law in the Christian life, as a rule of life. Let's just look at a couple of passages. Galatians chapter 2, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 to start. Galatians 6, 2. I have a lot of passages for these messages here, these next two messages, and most of them we will look up because I thought this is so important that we get these things 
And for your part, that you see that it is in the Bible, it is in the New Testament. We're going to turn to most of the passages, I think at least, as we go on. Galatians 6, verse 2. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, someone might say, well, well, that's not God's law, that's Christ's law. So let's think through that for a minute. So where in the Bible is Christ's law as distinct from God's law? Your time is up. <laughs> it's nowhere. In fact, Jesus spoke very differently from that idea, didn't he? I and my Father are one. Our mind is the same. Our purpose is the same. My teaching is the same as my Father's. Jesus said, I don't do anything unless it's what I see my Father doing. He didn't come in this world to do anything but what his Father told him to do. So when it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, it's not talking about a different law from the law of God. It's talking about God's law, Christ's law. And we are to bear one another's burdens. Now, how do we know how to do that? Well, it's written down, actually, in the Bible. So you can, whether you want to look at it as the Ten Commandments or the two great commandments, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, the, the, those two commandments are, are expounded in the Ten Commandments. And then the Ten Commandments are expounded by all the other commandments. Even just focus on the commandments of the New Testament if you want. Everything about how to love, everything about how to obey the Ten Commandments, it's all there in all the commands of Scripture. It's all God's law for us. And so if we want to live the Christian life Here's how we do it. We fulfill God's law. We fulfill Christ's law. Look at James 2, verses 8, and then 11 and 12. James 2, verse 8, first of all, and then verses 11 and 12. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The words of Jesus and, and also the words of Moses in Leviticus 19. But here James, the New Testament apostle, calls those words, Old Testament words, words of Moses in the first five books, the Pentateuch or the Torah, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And let me just mention, James is saying there, it's a good thing to do that. In other words, keeping God's law is a good thing to do. He's not saying if you do that, there's something wrong with you. He's saying if you really do it, it's good. You do well. Okay? Now verses 11 and 12. Then he says, for he who said, and now he's going to tell us, 
more details about what is the royal law of Scripture, or the royal law according to the Scripture. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. You know those are from the Ten Commandments. That's part of the royal law according to Scripture that James wants us to obey. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You're sinning. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So just a few observations from this text. As I already said about verse 8, it's good to obey God's law. James says if you do that, you do well. A second observation is this. It is bondage to be under the law, as Paul mentioned in Romans 6.14. Remember he says that Sin will not have dominion over you because you as a Christian are not under law or under the law. That is, whatever Paul was describing there is bondage. But to be obligated to obey God's law does not constitute bondage. Because this is what James is saying here. You as a Christian are obligated to obey God's law. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's God's law. Don't commit adultery. That's God's law. Don't commit murder. We could probably all think of at least eight other things that fit in that category as well. And saying, I have to do these things is not bondage. In fact, one of the reasons I especially say that, commenting on this text, is that um, in verse 11, uh, 12, it speaks of that same law as the law of liberty. In other words, if I say, I only have one master in this world, and it's God, and I only obey His laws and nobody else's, that is not bondage. That's what we sang about in that last hymn. Dear Lord and Master mine, thy happy servant see. We're, we're happy to be under God's yoke. It's the law of liberty for us as Christians. And then the third observation is this, that Christians will be judged by the law of God. That doesn't mean you earn your salvation. That means in the day of judgment, we saw this in Romans 2, it's very, very clear, and James just repeats that point. So speak, he says in verse 12, and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. It's the law of liberty because you've been released from true bondage, the bondage to Satan, the bondage to sin, the bondage, Hebrews 2, to fear of death. You've been delivered from that. Now all you have to do is do what God says in the perfect law, the royal law, the law of liberty, 
you'll be judged by that, but the judgment is just this, not to determine whether or not you are good enough to save yourself, just to demonstrate to the rational universe on the day of judgment that God really did deliver you from bondage to sin in Satan. He did deliver you from the realm of sin and condemnation and death. And the proof of it is you set about from the day that God delivered you in doing the royal law of Scripture, obeying His commandments, the law of liberty. And God enabled you actually to do it like we heard this morning. And God has all the proof of that and He'll show it to the universe on the day of judgment. That's the teaching of the Bible. So Christians will be judged by the law of God, but it doesn't mean you earn your salvation. The point is this. God's law is a guide for you, Christian, in your life. It tells you how to live. So there's a proper purpose for the law in the Christian life. We saw the fact of it in 1 Timothy 1.8. We saw the basic pur purpose just now. It's a rule of life. Now let's just look at some specific examples. And I'll just use one text for that. But it's Romans 13.8-10. through 10. We kind of got onto this point there in James 2, but now let's look at Romans 13, 8 to 10. It kind of follows the same train of thought. James started out with the royal law of Scripture, love one another as you love yourself, and Paul kind of uses the same flow of thinking, the same argument here. He gets into a few more commandments, though. He says in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. In other words, pay off your debts. Don't say, I'm a Christian, and Jesus said, remember, the sons are free. They are. But then he said, but pay the poll tax anyway. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So if you love other people, you're keeping God's law. So the argument that many people use, well, I, I don't follow commandments anymore, I just love. You're, you're saying something that the Scripture doesn't know anything about. And then verse 9 through 10. For the commandments, what law is he talking about here? You say, oh, the law of Christ, something different from the Ten Commandments. He says, no, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. There's five commandments. And if there is any other commandment, we can probably all think of at least five, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you say, I don't obey commandments, I just love, you're contradicting the scripture. And if you say, I just love, I don't obey commandments, you don't even know what love is. Because Paul is saying the Ten Commandments define love for us. I mean, isn't that true here? God's law in a passage like this defines love. Well, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do I do that? Very simple. Don't commit adultery against your neighbor. 
Don't murder your neighbor. Don't murder them in actual physical fact by killing them for no good purpose. Don't murder them with your words. Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. Don't murder him in your thoughts, which some of us who have temper problems, though we've never killed a person, and thankfully maybe never even hit people and drawn blood or broken their bones, yet we've murdered people thousands of times in our minds. Maybe a dozen times on the typical drive down the parkway. Which really isn't funny, but it was my fault. But how do you know what love is without the commandments of God? You don't. God's law defines love. I mean, that is an easy way to define one of the most difficult words in the world to define, isn't it? Because that's what Paul does here. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal his stuff. Don't lie about him. Don't even have an unhealthy desire for his stuff or his wife. That's love of your neighbor. God's law defines love. And God's law tells you how to conduct yourself in every single human relationship and every circumstance you could ever face in any relationship. I don't think the scriptures could be any plainer about the fact that, one, the law is a very good thing, and two, it has a right and a helpful place. In fact, a necessary place in the Christian life. So the clear teaching of the New Testament about the role of the law, I just had two points, some positive statements about the law. It's a good thing. We saw Romans 3.31, Romans 7.12. Secondly, there is a proper purpose for the law in the Christian life. It is a rule of life for us, God's law. Another thing that shows us that the law has a place in the Christian life is my second heading, and that is the example of Jesus. So I'm not talking about his teaching, which would be included under my first point, the teaching of the New Testament. We didn't look at much of it. We saw the quote of Jesus in James chapter 2. We could turn to a lot of Jesus' teaching about the fact that the law is a rule of life for the Christian. But I just want to focus for a few minutes on his example, the example of Jesus. Isn't Jesus Christ our example in just about everything in the Christian life? I mean, I, I didn't think it was a great thing, that, that um, trend some years ago. Maybe it was like, maybe it was two or more decades ago now, when the people had those little wristbands, WWJD. I didn't think that was the greatest thing in the world, but there's a lot of truth in it, right? That if we really asked ourselves, what would Jesus do? And we answered it from a biblical standpoint, and then we tried to do it. I mean, that would take us a long way in the Christian life. 
And the more we did that, the better off we'd be. Why? Because Jesus is the greatest example. Even when Paul said as an apostle to the Corinthians, imitate me, he followed that with, as I imitate Christ. In other words, imitate me to the degree that I imitate Jesus. But when it comes down to it, the ultimate example and the real sole legitimate test for whether anybody's example is good or not is the example of Jesus. We can all agree on that as Christians. He is our example. He's the greatest example we have. And he's our example in everything, except we could say in things related to his being God, because we cannot be God. Or in his being the Messiah, we can't die for our own sins or anybody else's sins. So we, we take those things. But even there, think about this, brethren. God, we're told in Matthew 5.48, tells us, this is our heavenly father. This is not just the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus says about God, his heavenly father, therefore, you be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. So God is our example. Christ is our example. God is even our example in something we can't do. He makes the sun shine on the ungodly. And he makes rain fall on their fields so their crops can grow. We can't do that. But we can take the example and say, I need to follow God's law, the expression of his character in all my dealings, even with unconverted people, even with unbelievers. But we're focusing on the example of Jesus, the God-man. Even Jesus, brethren, was under law, wasn't he? That's the statement of Galatians 4, verse 4. So let's look at that. Galatians 4 and verse 4. In some sense, Jesus was under law. He was not under law in the sense of Romans 6, verse 14, when it says you are not under law, because he's talking about what we used to be as sinners. And Jesus was never under law as a sinner because he was never a sinner. But he was under law, and notice how it states that in verse 4 of Galatians 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, in what sense, then, was Jesus under the law, if not in the sense that we were when we came into this world under the realm, uh, the, 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 the uh, dominion of sin, and in the realm of sin and condemnation and death? Well, he was under the law in that he accepted the law as a rule for his life, right? He did. Um, John the Baptist didn't want to baptize Jesus. And Jesus said, no, do it, because it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. I'm a man under law. And so to fulfill all righteousness, I need to do this, even though I haven't ever broken the law. He was under the law as a rule for his life. And he loved the law of God. He loved it. Look at, Ro um, not Romans, Psalm 40, verse 8. Psalm 40, verse 8. This is a psalm that we could say, at least in part, is a messianic psalm. 
because in this statement in verse, actually verses 7 and 8, <clears throat> both, both these verses are quoted in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. But we have really the words of Jesus ultimately. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I come. So that's talking about the Messiah coming into the world. And then he, then he says, In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. So those are two parallel statements. He delights to do God's will. He delights to do what God wants him to do. He has God's will or God's law in his heart, and he loves it. He loves the law of God. He delights in it. He delights in doing it. So we should be following his example in that. He accepted it as a rule for his life. We should do that as Christians. He loved the law of God. We should do that as Christians. And think of, think of this, brethren. He's our example in that way. Jesus, other than to be our Savior, there's a sense in which we could say he didn't need the law of God. He was the law of God incarnate. The law was spoken by him to us. The law is just a reflection of his character, what, who and what he always is and always has been. He didn't need it the way we do need it. We do need it. We need it to help us turn from sin and to put sin to death. He had no sin. Thankfully, if God has saved us, God has changed our heart so that we also now love God's law. Our only problem is we don't love it as perfectly as he did and does. Let me give you one of my favorite quotes about the law. It's from John Calvin. Calvin said this, and I think, I think it follows well from this point, that as we think about following the example of Jesus, we should love God's law and, and keep God's law. But we have a need for it that Jesus didn't because we are sinners. And even as Christians, we have remaining sin, as we know the Bible teaches. And as I mentioned this morning already, Calvin said this, he says again, because we, not only, because we need not only teaching, but also exhortation, the servant of God, the Christian, will also avail himself of this benefit of the law. By frequent meditation upon it, to be aroused to obedience, be strengthened in it, and be drawn back from the slippery path of transgression, in this way, that is meditating on the law and being strengthened so that we turn away from sin. In this way, the saints must press on. For however eagerly they may, in accordance with the Spirit, strive toward God's righteousness, the listless flesh, listless, listless means it doesn't care. So by nature, we don't really care about doing right. The listless flesh, he says, always so burdens them, that is Christians, that they do not proceed with due readiness. The law is to the flesh, Calvin says, like a whip to an idle and stubborn mule to arouse it to work. 
He says, even for a spiritual man, in other words, a mature Christian, even for a spiritual man, Calvin says, not yet free of the weight of the flesh, which we never will be in this life, the law remains a constant sting that will not let him stand still. In other words, the law will push you, nudge you, prod you, kick you in one direction as a Christian, in the direction of running in the ways of God's commandments, in the direction of being more like Jesus, in the direction of loving God's law and submitting to his yoke and rejoicing in it. The example of Jesus. We need to be like him in his view of the law, his love for the law, his happily putting himself under the yoke of the law, which is not burdensome. And then a third argument when it comes to the clear teaching of the New Testament about the role of the law for tonight, I think this is as far as we'll get. And that is the main thrust of our passage, Romans chapter 6, up to this point, and, and, and going on for the rest of the chapter as well. But the main thrust of this passage is a good argument for using the law of God as a rule in your life as a Christian. Whether you think of just verse 14 of, uh, or the first 14 verses or the whole chapter and the, and the rest of the book of Romans, you could look at it this way. And remember, that's, this is where the verse 14 is. It's in a passage that encourages us, if you look at it, from a scriptural perspective, to follow God's law. Here's how we could look at this passage. Think of from verse 1 through verse 14. It's basically said, God has done all these things for Christians in Christ through his work on the cross, and because you are in union with him through faith, and because God chose you in him before the foundation of the world, Christ has done all these things for you as a Christian. Now he's brought you into experiential union with him by saving you. Why has he done it? He's done it, first of all, so that you will be engaged in this battle that's described here in Romans 6. Take, for instance, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. So you have to be engaged in this battle. It's a battle against sin. We, we focused on the same idea, but in different words, different scriptural imagery over last summer in Ephesians 6 about the, um, the Christian armor, the full armor of God, didn't we? We're in a fight. We have to fight, and we have to fight against sin, and we have to fight God's way. God has done all these things for us in Christ so that we would be engaged in that battle. And then... He's done it so we would be engaged in that battle and not just fight, but fight and win. Verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So you want to be in it to win it as a Christian. You want to fight and you want to fight to win. And God has done all this in Christ so we would realize that God's law helps us to see whether we're winning that battle or not. 
whether we're fighting the battle or not, whether we're fighting it God's way or not. Let's turn over to Romans 8 for a moment. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. Paul says there, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So that's a restatement of things I've been saying over and over again. Paul's been saying over and over again. You cannot be saved by keeping the law. The law can't help you when you're a sinner. It can't save you. It can't help you to save yourself. It's not one of the things the law can do. Christ did that. That's what this statement is saying. He condemned sin in the flesh. And the next word in verse 4 there is that. Or it could be interpreted so that. Or it could be interpreted in order that. In order that what? Christ saved you from sin. In order that what? So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? So that the righteous requirement of the law might be, might be fulfilled in us. It either means so that you might be able to do what Christ did. That you might be able to perfectly obey God's law and save yourself. So does anybody think that is the purpose of Christ's death? So you could perfectly keep God's law and save yourself? No, that's not the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in you. The other option is this. When it says, so that he, he died and condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you, it would be something along these lines. So that you, in your life, might walk in newness of life. Like it's the same pastor, preacher, and theologian who wrote Romans 6 saying this. That's the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us. And then he further explains what he means by that. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So in other words, it's just like with love. If we walk in love, that means we're obeying God's commandments in our relationships with other people. And some people like say, well, I don't live by the law. I live by the Spirit. Well, how does it say it here? Those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, are those in whom, first part of verse 4, are having the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in them. So in other words, if I'm not living by the flesh, I'm not murdering people. If I'm, if I'm not living by the flesh, I'm not coveting things of other people. I'm not lying about them. I'm not stealing from them. If I'm living by the Spirit, 
I'm fulfilling the law of God, the righteous requirements of the law. In other words, God saved us so we would keep his laws. I've said that Romans 6.14 does not mean that you don't have to obey God's law. Or it doesn't mean that, that the law of God has nothing to do with your life as a Christian. And I stand by that, brethren. The scriptures teach that all throughout. We've got to take the whole scripture into account. You may like to use Romans 6.14 when someone tells you that you should obey God's commandments. You may like to use that text because you don't like people telling you if you've sinned. You don't like people telling you what you should do. You don't like anyone telling you. You don't even like God's law telling you that. So someone says you shouldn't do that. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't talk like that. You shouldn't go to places like that. And then you say, well, why? And they say, well, the Bible says, and maybe your standard reply has been, don't be a legalist. We're not under law. We're under grace. As I've said, that is a misuse of this Bible verse. That is a perversion of Paul's words. That is a twisting of Scripture. Now, there is a text that you could use in that situation if that's what your mind is. And let's look at it. It'll maybe be the last text we turn to. It's Proverbs chapter 9. Let's look at Proverbs 9, verses 7 to 9. People are coming up to you. You say, I'm delivered from the law. I'll just do things. And whatever happens will happen, but I know I'm forgiven. And I'm not going to bother myself with constantly turning to the Ten Commandments or any other commandments of the Bible. That's not living by the Spirit. That's not living in love, you think. So here's a text for you. If someone's coming up to you and telling you that you don't, you, about what you should be doing as a Christian, because the Bible says it, and you really don't want to see it, and, and they're not going to listen to you if you give that wrong interpretation of Romans 6.14. So here's the text. You tell that person, he who reproves a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man gets himself a blemish. Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. In other words, that's a way of saying, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear rebuke. I definitely don't want to hear it from God's law. And you are, on the, on, you are on the brink of leading me to hate you. There's a text you can use. And the rest goes on like this. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. If you really want to tell someone, don't rebuke me, verses 7 and the first part of verse 8 are saying, I don't want to hear that. And the last part of verse 8 and verse 9 are saying, go tell someone else. 
Tell someone who will listen. But I hope you never use that text for that purpose. Because you know I've stated it tongue-in-cheek, but I'm just trying to make a point, brethren. There is so much wrong thinking on this subject in our day and age, including in the professing Christian church. We need to understand what Scripture teaches, and we need to stay far away from it. May God give us all a spirit of faith and humility, and where we need it, repentance, so that we will think about God's law the way God does. Now, I'm not making it through the end, so I have no conclusion to my sermon, but I thought of one uh, before I left my study, and it's going to be this. I want to read to you from our Confession of Faith. I'm going to recommend studying the Confession, just like well, you heard a recommendation this morning to study the... Um, the hymn that we sang this morning. I'll mention that again next time, God willing. But in our Confession of Faith, if you want to turn there and read it, it's on page 680, chapter 19, XIX, entitled, Of the Law of God. And I want to read part of that last big paragraph there, and that's where we'll end. The writers were right, and they, they were just following the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Presbyterians. And they wrote this Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, I've been stating that again tonight, I've been stating that throughout. Yet, yet, the law of God is of great use to them as well as to others in that. As a rule of life, it's the point I've been making tonight. And then think of what it does as a rule of life, brethren. I didn't even get into all these particulars, but think of it this way. Informing them of the will of God and their duty. It tells us what God wants us to do. We'll get into that more next time. It directs them to walk accordingly. It says, do this, don't do that. That helps us as Christians. Then also this, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives. The law does that. There's nothing else in this world God has given us to help us see the sin in ourselves and in our lives better than the law of God. It's like a mirror showing us who and what we really are, not what we think we are. So showing us the, uh, informing us about and discovering the sinful pollution of our natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of His obedience. In other words, the law of God is a tool God has put in your hands and mine as Christians to help us see our sin better, to help us see the ugliness of our sin better, to help us to fall down on our faces and acknowledge what weak, beggarly creatures we are so we can sing things like, thank you, Lord, for saving such a worm as I am. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that we can fall on our faces and ask God forgiveness to our sins, 
that we won't let ourselves get puffed up like Peter. I would never do something like that. That we would live at the foot of the cross and constantly be begging God for mercy for our sins in Christ and receiving forgiveness in Christ and going our way rejoicing, encouraged along the path of our Christian life and determined that we are going to run more swiftly in the ways of God's commandments than we ever have before. The law helps us to do that, brother. And if there's something in this world that does that in a better way, I would just like you to tell me what it is. Because I want to use that instead of the law. But I think, or at least I hope, what you'll all admit is the law is the thing that God has given us for that purpose. I'll get into it next time. Even if you say, but, but I'll just live the way Jesus lived. There's only one way you know how Jesus lived. There's like two or three verses about his life till he was 30 years old in the New Testament. The main verses in the Bible that tell you how he lived as a child, as a son, etc. are things like, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. I mean, you could say, well, it's the example of Jesus that told, tells me not to steal toys from my brother. There's no example or teaching in the Bible about Jesus playing with his brothers. The reason we know he never stole their toys is because God's law says you shall not steal. That's how we know how Jesus lived. Well, there's so much more to say. I'm going to stop saying it now and wait till next week or two weeks or maybe three weeks from now because I'm going on a little uh, jaunt down to Phoenix where it's nice and warm. But let's pray that God will write these things on our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take your law and write it on our hearts. Lord, if we're Christians, we know you've done that. Our plea is that you would write it in more indelible characters and that you would help us to live by it more and more faithfully. Help us to live like Jesus lived, gladly submitting our necks to the yoke of your law, because your yoke is easy and your burden is light, and gladly walking in the ways of your commandments and loving and delighting in that law. Teach us, O oh God, the way of truth, and may we never depart from it. And we ask, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.